Hello everyone. Thanks for listening to another Freed from Feminism. This is Teresa. In this episode, we interviewed Dr. Rachel Fulton Brown, a medievalist scholar and tenured professor at the University of Chicago. We have been meaning to do an episode exclusively about the Blessed Mother for quite a while, and this gave us a perfect opportunity. We discussed one of Dr. Fulton Brown's books, Mary and the Art of Prayer, The Hours of the Virgin in Medieval Life and Thought. She gives us a shocking yet beautiful and inspiring history lesson about how everything we've learned about the Middle Ages, specifically with regards to Marian devotion, is wrong. It's hard to imagine a culture in which Our Lady is as present as the air we breathe or essentially fundamental to interpreting the Catholic faith. But that is what Dr. Fulton Brown describes as everyday life in medieval Christendom. Dr. Fulton Brown's full biography is lengthy and impressive, so please check it out on the University of Chicago's website. But for our purposes today, she has authored many books, which you can find on Amazon, has appeared on many podcasts and YouTube shows, and is an avid fencer. Much to our disappointment and frustration, we had significant technical issues during the recording of this podcast, and thus the episode has been heavily edited and, in fact, is cut quite short. Usually we wouldn't upload an unfinished podcast, but it really would be truly a shame to lose the amazing and inspiring information Dr. Fulter Brown was kind enough to give us. So please enjoy this shortish episode on devotion to the Blessed Mother, And also, please consider buying the book we discussed because it is absolutely fascinating and well worth the money. Thanks again for tuning in, and God bless. Hi everyone. Thank you again for tuning in to another Freed from Feminism. My name is Teresa. And I'm Beth. And tonight we are absolutely thrilled to have with us um, Dr. Rachel Fulton Brown of the University of Chicago, like you just heard. And uh, she has written several books, but the one we're going to be talking about mostly tonight is called Mary and the Art of Prayer, The Hours of the Virgin in Medieval Christian Life and Thought. And so we are really excited. We've never actually done a full episode on devotion to Our Lady, even though we mention it in virtually every episode. And um, y'all all know how important Our Lady is to us in understanding and becoming more feminine and rejecting the lies that modernism and and feminism throws at us. So, um, Dr. Fulton Brown, thank you so very, very, very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I, I all, you know, I always love talking about Mary, so <laughs> I'm glad to have a whole hour for it. So we are super excited to dive into these questions. Uh, as Teresa mentioned, the main book we really want to focus on that we found very interesting and ties into a lot of what we talk about on the podcast is the book Mary and the Art of Prayer, The Hours of the Virgin Mary in Medieval Life and Thought. Uh, this is a very scholarly book, and Teresa has been looking at it herself and sent me some quotes. Uh, and it talks all about the medieval devotion to Our Lady. So if you wouldn't mind sharing with us um, 
and our listeners, what are the hours of the Virgin Mary and why was it so popular throughout Christendom during this time? So the hours, um, you may know them as the little office of the Virgin Mary. Um, it's the same thing. Um, the hours are the hours of the liturgical day. Um, so there's a night office of matins and then seven hours um, during during the day. And in in the monastic practice, that's the divine office, right? And they're divided up uh, over the course of the, the year into special observances, um, Sundays and and um the days of the week and then, you know, feasts like we just had um, Trinity Sunday this this past Sunday and so forth. The hours of the Virgin are a, a sort of special set of chants, um, psalms, lessons, prayers in honor of Our Lady. Right. And they fit this monastic structure of, of praying in the middle. 13th century, they were said um, sort of throughout Christendom. In a, in a, in a wide variety of, um, versions. And if, if you've ever seen a, a, a medieval manuscript, it's like in a, like on a picture on a Christmas card or maybe a, a book in, um, a, a museum display, the odds are you've seen an, a book of hours, right? Because one, they're very, very beautiful. <laughs> and two, they, they were the bestseller of, of the period that liturgical books were very frequent. It was like people wanted to learn to pray. And so they have, they have texts, but books of hours, um, particularly by the 14th and 15th centuries, were the single most sort of common type of book. Uh, Psalters were also very, very popular. But books of hours were what if you had a book um, by the later Middle Ages, you would you would have a book of hours to be able to say the the hours of Our Lady, the Office of the Dead, various other prayers. Um, and so in, in, in thinking about, you know, sort of Mary in the art of prayer, what the what you know, what did medieval Christians pray? If they could read, they started by learning to read the Hours of the Virgin. So I was hoping in in the book to really give a, a you know a way into medieval devotion more fully, not just to Mary, but medieval devotion begins with you know being able to say the Ave Maria, which is the the antiphon, the opening chant for um, matins of the Hours of the Virgin. So basically, if you've been saying the Ave Maria, you've already been saying the first chant. Wow, thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> that is fascinating. I'm it's glad you made that clarification because I actually I know it by the little office, and I was like, oh, I know that book. I have that. <laughs> right, so. you should know it. And 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 the thing is, what's what's fun about it is if you it, it the, my book starts with that claim. It's like you know every medieval Christian man, woman, or child who could read, right? And there is that particular caveat, right? It's it mm-hmm. most of the people saying the Hours of the Virgin seem to have read it, but there we do have evidence for people knowing how to say the hours without having read it so you know somehow people were learning this cycle of psalms and chants you know simply out of love for mary and wanting to 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 um praise her and to through praising her you know give thanks to god our creator wow is has it changed much does the did the integrity of what the um you know the office back then was it still preserved through a lot of copies today or is it has a lot been lost um well in in effect yes a lot has been lost but for not the reason that you might expect (laughs) um that one of the interesting things about the medieval office is i said there were lots of different versions we have manuscript and printed evidence of as many as 600 different versions oh wow um that yeah that what what there was a wonderful um 
blogs, a website that I think has been taken down now that I use, I reference a, a fair amount in the book that the, the, um, it was just a labor of love. This, um, in Copenhagen, this, um, scholar who was making a catalog of all the different versions he found. And he said that he had seen as many as 600 different variants after the Council of Trent um, in 1571, there are licenses given to printers and, you know, for example, the Plenty Moretus printing, printing house in Antwerp to print a an approved version of the Hours of the Virgin. And that is the one that most people know today. It's the use of Rome. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we lost was all of the variants um, in, in the sense that, you know, the, the Cistercians had one, the Dominicans had another. The use of Rome was modeled on the Franciscans um, version. But say in France, uh, every, you know, different diocese, we have records of their having different versions of it. So what we lost in the, the post Tridentine um, observance is the, the sort of grassroots variety. Hmm. Fascinating. Yeah, there's there's so much fascinating in your book, um, Dr. Fulton Brown, that, like I said, when we were talking before, we could truly do either 12 hours straight or a series about your your entire. Everyone needs to go and buy this book because it is such a scholarly delve into Marian devotion. And in fact, I'm thinking of giving it to some of my Protestant family because it. I'm not sure how you can read it without uh, coming away thinking, you know, Marian devotion was a part of everyone's lives up until 1517, which sounds like sounds like they, they had a lot of better lives in a lot of different way, <laughs> ways than we do <laughs> anyway. So that's probably why. But um, <clears throat> one thing that leapt off the page to my husband and I, because we're reading it together right now. And, and if I can, I would love to just kind of um, read an excerpt from your book, and then maybe you can uh, answer a couple questions about it. You say, but what if Mary and the Art of Prayer invites its readers to imagine, contrary to more recent traditions of reading the Psalms, there is a tradition of reading according to which the Psalms make mention of the Virgin Mary all the time. What if, according to this tradition of interpretation, just as the Lord of the Psalms might be identified as Jesus Christ, so the Virgin Mary might be identified not as a type of the church, but as herself the lady who gave birth to the Lord and stood beside his throne in gold-woven robes as his queen, Psalm 44.10. What if, in this tradition, not only the Psalms, but indeed the whole of Scripture made mention of the Virgin Mary over and over and over again as the one through whom the Lord entered into his creation and made his face shine upon the world. To attempt to read the Psalms and the other texts of the Marian office in this way is to step into a beam that will be re- that will require us to see not only the Virgin, but indeed the whole of Christianity in a light most modern Christians, not to mention most modern scholars, have never seen so convinced have we become that those who saw by it could only but be deluded or mad. And then in one other place, you say, quote, all scripture, all scripture was written concerning her and about her and because of her and for her, the whole world was made. She who is full of the grace of God and through whom man has been redeemed the word of God made flesh, God humbled, and man sublimed, end quote. 
so that is astonishing. Basically, your assertion is that scripture makes mention of Our Lady over and over and over again, almost as though we should see scripture through the lens of the mother of God. So I would love for you to just talk about that um, a little bit, specifically with regards to how we view her as, you know, quote unquote, merely a type. And perhaps you could give us a couple examples of um, this idea that you're you're proposing maybe examples of scripture that we wouldn't um, know of, you know, for, you know, people have heard the Ark of the Covenant, people have heard um, more famous ones, but maybe a little bit more obscure examples. Well, now all of your Protestant listeners are horrified, right? <laughs> <laughs> Um, that, well, that being, I mean, that being the, the primary problem in the 16th century, that the reading of scripture changes and the, the sense that um, medieval exegetes had of all of scripture speaking all the time of, of Christ and his mother um, is, is revised um, greatly. Um, you know, interestingly, the, the, if, if you're I mean, if you have any um, Presbyterian readers, one of the places in um, the book, I point out that this reading of the Old Testament for mentions of Our Lady fits with the, the, the same mention that John Calvin insists that every time the angel of the Lord is mentioned um, in the Old Testament, we, re- we should read it as Christ. Right. And, and not just like figuratively, but actually that, as you know, in, in the mentions of the Old Testament, you have the action of the son described as the you know the angel in isaiah it's it's either it can be he can be the angel of great counsel or um you know it's like thinking about the ark with the angel of the lord closes the door calvin would say well that's you know that's a mention of of jesus right that's a mention of christ um similarly in you know in the in the orthodox and eastern orthodox and medieval latin traditions when you're reading scripture, you're because you're reading with the expectation that it's all pointing ultimately to the incarnation. You're going to find references to the way in which God becomes present, uh, you know, in his temple, um, you know, in the cloud, that, the pillar of cloud that led the Israelites through the desert, um, you know, on the holy mountain and so forth. And in the medieval exegesis which is that second passage you said all scripture was written concerning her about her and because of her that's me quoting a a 13th century sermon that's just given this list of all the places that she shows up in scripture that the way they read it is if if all scripture is going to be showing forth the incarnation of our lord that incarnation is also figured and shown through all of the other times in which the presence is 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 you know, I can't say visible because it's only through the incarnation that God becomes truly visible. But Mary is in all of those places. So you said with the Ark of the Covenant that she is, of course, the, you know, the great um, container of our Lord. But then that means any other container that she could be is is also seen as as one of her attributes. So in my in, in chapter four, in chapter four, I give I, I do a the, the book is experimental in a number of ways. And one of them is one giving a, a commentary on all of the Psalms, um, the, uh, the Marian office and, and trying to show that the Psalms are chosen because they actually make reference to the places where Mary is present. For example, Psalm 23 that, and, and they have to be the, the Vulgate numbering. So forgive, forgive you. I think of them in the Vulgate numbering. It's 24 in the usual one. Um, or the, Protestant numbering, it's a dominant terra, 
and let me go to my okay so this psalm was the one that um was used or was said to one it's one of the psalms that is said to have been composed by david for the carrying of the ark and it has passages like who is this king of glory the lord who is strong and mighty the lord mighty in battle in the in the office of the virgin um, there's an antiphone framing that psalm that says before the couch of this virgin repeat to us the sweet songs of the drama well what drama would that be and then you realize that the psalm is that the antiphone is showing you that the psalm is about carrying mary as the ark of the covenant into the holy city and and therefore it's a reference to the drama is a reference to her own um say um you know death and assumption into heaven or something like that so they're 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 reading the the images in the old testament as direct references to events symbolism you know the significance of the new testament events i show you that in chapter three in chapter four i go through um a, a number of 13th century texts that were specifically commentaries on these images and um you asked me to give, give an example of um one of those images right well i what i opened it up was tabernacle okay so this is from richard of saint laurent's um 12 books in praise of our lady and much of those 12 books are are lists of all of these different titles by which she was known right tabernacle so um Lord, the psalmist asks, who shall dwell in my tabernacle? That's from Psalm 14.1. That is in the Blessed Virgin, as if to say, no one but you alone. And and that's that's a quotation from Richard, and then I'm paraphrasing. Christ has multiple tabernacles. First and most worthy, the body that he took from the Virgin. Second, the body of the Virgin herself. Third, the church militant. Fourth, the church triumphant. Fifth, the body of the just man. Sixth, any ordered religion. Let us, Richard says, take each in order. Of the first, the psalmist says, he has set his tabernacle in the sun. That's from Psalm 18.6. That is, in the virgin, when he assumed human nature from her, when he who is eternal entered into time and took on that which he had not had, hunger, thirst, fatigue, sleep, and the like. So the first tabernacle in this understanding is Christ's own body, right? His, his physical self. Of the second, she herself says, he who created me rested in my tabernacle. Ecclesiasticus 24.12. So just to, I know this is hard to listen to. This is why it's like it's a long book because I'm trying to get you to constantly hear all of these references in these, these um, passages. And so right. Psalm 18.6, he has set his tabernacle in the sun, is constantly referred to Mary. The Psalm 18 is used in the office. Here Richard is pointing to it saying, if he set his tabernacle in the sun, that first tabernacle is Christ's own flesh. The second is the one that wisdom speaks of in Ecclesiasticus 24, saying, he who created me rested in my tabernacle. And then note, Richard observes, that a tabernacle or tent is proper to knights and pilgrims, quote, for just as a knight about to fight, arm, about to fight arms himself in his tent, that he might go out armed to battle, thus Christ about to fight the devil for his disinherited bride, namely the church, Put on the armor of human flesh in the womb of the Blessed Virgin as in a tent, end quote. Um, likewise, oh. when the Son of God became a pilgrim, that is a stranger and a sojourner from heaven on earth at the incarnation, Mary received him in her tent. She is the tabernacle placed in the midst of the camp, as in Leviticus, the tabernacle of the true Moses, adorned and constructed and covered with skins, dyed red and blue and with goat's hair, that is, virtues of every kind. 
and the tabernacle of the covenant from which the cloud was taken up. See cloud. <laughs> At the assumption of her body, because, quote, in her was made the covenant between God and man through the marriage with the flesh assumed from her. And he goes on to the third tabernacle, the fourth, fifth, and sixth. It's that kind of reading that I'm trying to introduce you to, whereby you see in history told in the Old Testament and in the imagery of the Old Testament, all of these references to the way God becomes present, constant references to the true ark, tabernacle, city of God, mountain, and so forth. That is the Virgin Mary because that's the place where God became present to us visibly in the incarnation. Wow. So perhaps this is, I'm not going to directly address everything you just said because the overall feeling I had while you were talking was, how on earth did we lose this? <laughs> if, <laughs> if, right, all exactly. scripture, if all of scripture points to our lady through, through Jesus and through uh, God the Father, and I think you say the Holy Trinity earlier as well, how... How did we get to now where, you know, Marian devotion is considered, you know, just saying the rosary? Indeed. Yes. And so the first passage that you read was from the introduction. And I said, you know, it's like people who believe this are deluded or mad. <laughs> and and the mad is actually pointing to um, a, a little story I tell in the epilogue where um, I'm talking about one of the, the last great exemplars of this tradition. It's Sor Maria the Jesus de Agreda's mystical city of God, which she wrote in Spanish, um, but it's it in the early 17th century. It's depend. It's very very dependent on all of this imagery. And if you read it, I, it's it's the translation of the mystical city is available um, in a version in English in a version that was done in the early 20th century, published in Chicago. And I've seen it. I've, I've yeah, seen it like on I people's. Yeah, you have it. Okay, so Sua yeah. Maria is working completely within this tradition. And if you know the way in which she both, you know, has the, the visions from Our Lady who describes to her her life and her you know relationship with Joseph and with Jesus and all of that amazing um, vision, visionary references to uh, the, the, the story that I tell in the epilogue is particularly the scene in uh, that Sua Maria tells before the Annunciation, when Mary is prepared for nine days to become the temple. Right now you'll recognize that that's where it is coming. It's like it's, she's becoming the temple. She's clothed in, you know, she's clothed and arrayed and filled with all of the wisdom of creation and, you know, gold inside and out. She's becoming the temple in which the son will become incarnate. And um, so Maria is just so steeped in this long exegetical tradition that anybody who re- reads it now will think she's making it all up. She's not. She's she's within this long um, exegetical and liturgical tradition. Well, I did. That's correct. I did. You, you thought she was making it all up. <laughs> not making it up, but but it sim- seemed so incredibly astounding. It it just made me pause for a second. <laughs> a second. I'm like, uh, what now? <laughs> Well, now I can re- assure you that she, and, and one of the things I was curious about is like where she got it, because she's writing in Spanish, but she's her biographer said that she was very, very learned in, in Latin as well. It's it's possible that she could have had access, for example, to Richard of Saint Laurent because his book is published in Antwerp in her lifetime. And there's very close relationships between Antwerp and Spain and in in that period because the Habsburgs are still in control. And um 
you know, it's, it's, it's possible. It's not, I couldn't prove it, but what I can show is some of the, you know, the stranger ways in which she apparently is reading scripture are completely traditional in the 18th century. This is the little anecdote, right? Casanova, the great lover, <laughs> um, is imprisoned in Venice um, because he's been corrupting nuns and, and being mischievous in a variety of ways. And the inquisitor who is his jailer at, at that time offers him some reading and, he, and he, he rejects a book on the sacred heart because he says that's ridiculous. How can the heart be sacred? And instead reads Somaria's book, The, the Mystical City. Mm. And uh, no, and it, it, what's what's wonderful about it is is Casanova's um, verdict on Somaria's book is, you know, she must have been mad. Right. And he says the only way that, you know, it, and it probably the only way that, um, you know, should read this book is, you know, imprisoned under the leads in Venice. And it's, you know, guaranteed to drive you mad then, too. Right. So there's a even even in Catholic contexts. Uh, well, Casanova's isn't really Catholic. He's friends with Voltaire. So Voltaire is, you know, also <laughs> very, very dismissive of Somaria. By the 18th century, it's it's very easy to dismiss this this long tradition as simply not nuts. And I don't deal with probably what happened in the set in the in the 16th century in my book. But my sense is it's you know the the, the great cataclysm of exegesis that is the Protestant Reformation destabilizes this long liturgical tradition sufficiently that that people i i guess they lose faith in it they are mm-hmm. also losing faith in the the books that are central the, the scriptural books that are central to the tradition particularly things like ecclesiasticus because they're not available in hebrew right they're only in the septuagint they're only in greek and as far as the protestant humanists are concerned therefore they don't they don't count um, and, you know, the Marian tradition is uh, heavily dependent on the wisdom tradition that comes out of the Septuagint reading of the script, the Septuagint version of the scriptures. And you decouple those two things. One, the, the faith that that's part of the, the true Christian tradition and two, wisdom. And Mary just sort of floats away. She she can only look like the the mother of the, the human um figure and and doesn't have that that deep reference to the lady the wisdom of ecclesiasticus and proverbs and the psalms anymore what happens to the the the, the devotion to mary in the 16th century is something that i don't think anyone has properly um accounted for yeah i feel like so much is lost in that time period not just from protestantism but just sort of this rise of you know science and all that that i think we look back at these times and we look at it through our 21st century lens and don't always understand where they're coming from. Um, so with that, I, I am curious uh, if you could share with us, you know, take us back to that time period. Like let us uh, help us understand, like, what was it really like for women during that time period? You know, maybe a high class woman or a low class woman, um, you know, just hearing you mention about how um, popular the hours of the Virgin Mary were among Catholics, you know, it, this Mary must have played a really important life, a really important role in all of these women's lives and in their families. Like how how did they view themselves and their dignity and their purpose? Um, this is another thing that I think I I 
I need to write more about, but it, the, the core of it is is already available in Marrying the Art of Prayer. I mean, one of the big debates um, in medieval studies is always around chivalry and what mm-hmm. it means and where it comes from and and its association or not with courtly love. Um, the, the usual way that people tell the story is, you know, there's this sort of not secular, but just, you know, earthly um, development of love, love poetry and so forth. And that one of the things, for example, would be describing the lady and all of her beauty. Well, these are, I mean, these are poets that uh, if you're trained as, as a writer in any, any way in, in the middle ages, you're going to know the scriptures and there are, you know, di- intimate descriptions of the lady <laughs> in the scriptures in the song of songs for one which um i my first book is about the marian um uh, reading of the song of songs and that has a whole nother layer of story and narrative and such um but also again in ecclesiasticus which i've mentioned and you know particularly uh, verse uh, chapter 24 which has the, the great description of wisdom and you're you have descriptions of the lady's beauty available in Christian poetry from, you know, antiquity through all of this Marian devotion. So it's not that surprising that in the 11th, 12th century, you know, troubadouring start describing, you know, actual in these gorgeous terms. And the usual way is to say, ah, well, this troubadouring poetry, the description of Mary, but my sense is, well, no, the Marian devotion, and I show in, in, in Mary in the Art of Prayer, how old it is, right? It goes back to goes back to Luke, but it you know it definitely goes back to the Eastern Church, and and it's you know been centuries in in development before it even gets to the West, and all of that focused on describing Mary's beauty, right? You know the mother uh, the mother of God, but also as the Queen of Heaven, and you know I think you don't have the respect for women that we have in the Western tradition without the respect for Mary and that we have this mythology about, you know, women not being, you know, considered full citizens or, you know, medieval women held property all the time. So that that's nonsense that there, there, there are elements of the, the sort of mythology that are actually referring to more recent legal situations where women couldn't, inherit and things like that that in the in the throughout the middle ages women they're you know they had high they had high status insofar as they had social status at all different status from noble women Um, devotion to our lady gives people a very strong sense of the significance of motherhood throughout the period so the question you ask is you know how does marriage Mary's devotion to Mary affect the status of women. The problem is that that's just too complicated a question. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, I mean, to more no to be more specific about exactly what do we mean by the status of women and and you know what kind of reverence um, you know ha, ha, devotion to Mary imparts to you know other women. Um, but you know the, the reality is is that Christianity recognizes women. It, 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 you know, very highly already. So, wondering if you were um, going to mention too, just as how Mary is such an important role in Christianity. So, wouldn't the lives of women be reflected in that? And um, women see her as an example of the woman you would want to be. You know, the woman of blessed among all women. 
Well, I can answer that one more specifically that we think very sort of identity politics um, about models that we take, you know, it's like women need a role, strong role models. And so, we, you know, would, would we want Mary as a, as the role model? Women's devotion that we can see in detail, for example, of the saints is often much more directed toward Christ, right, that they are people like, um, you know, Gertrude of Helfta or Catherine of Siena or, you know, they're very, very strongly focused on a relationship with, with Jesus. So saying that they have a special devotion to Mary or not is, is, is typically overridden by their devotion to our Lord. Um, but, you know, the whether we role models people took as their patron saints, everybody prayed to Our Lady, right? So seeing the way in which women thought of their own status, I think, would probably be more reflected in their devotion to, to saints other than Mary. Hmm, Thinking out loud right now. Yeah, yeah, no, that's really interesting. I've always wondered that, you know, how um, I feel like everybody has a devotion to Our Lady nowadays as like a patron saint, but I'm like, she's Mary, like she's kind of everybody's patron saint. <laughs> Right. And like I said, you know, for very particular detailed devotional lives, we don't have that many examples Mm -hmm. of anybody. Right. Men or women. And that's why my my focus on, you know, at least how many copies of the books of hours we have show that there's a very widespread devotion to Mary, because that's the like most common um, written kind of evidence that we have for people's prayer life. Mm-hmm. But, you know, what we also know is that, you know, the, 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 the array of saints that people had devotions to throughout the Middle Ages was very rich and, you know, very local, very personal. If you're, there's a whole sort of subfield now in medieval studies on hagiography and, you know, lives of the saints and different cults and so forth. So that I think, unlike, say, 30 years ago when I just started my research, um, and it felt like, we had well we didn't have very much work on mary now we have rather a lot which is lovely um but we also have in in that period done you know done, you know d- d- many many studies of devotion to the saints and you need to have that the, the devotion to the saints in context to really understand how significant devotion to mary was mm, interesting you you sped past one part that I would like to go by, back to if we can because in in the plebeian world of feminist Twitter um, <laughs> one of the <laughs> one of the you know most common retorts when you talk about um, gosh anything not modern related is, you know, the Catholic Church is the most sexist organization in the history of the world. You know, it oppresses women, it suppresses blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, specifically about, quote unquote, the Dark Ages and the Medieval Ages. But you said that women were allowed to um, own property. And that's that's something that is is contradicted in our, our modern knowledge of of, uh, you know, um, the medieval ages. And also I've, my understanding is that women could not only own property, but they were a part of guilds and they were business owners. Is that correct? And could you expand on that a little bit? Um, yes, that's all correct. Um, so people like Voltaire, who, you know, spends his time making fun of Somaria, um, are directly responsible for our image of the period as dark. 
right? And, and, you know, Voltaire is famous for wanting to, you know, wipe out religion generically, but the, the Enlightenment did a great propaganda job on and claim that, you know, it was the in which the light of reason was shining out over, you know, the world and that all previous periods, particularly that, that those Catholic centuries had been, had been dark. Of course, as a medievalist and as a Catholic, I see it rather in the reverse. <laughs> um, and that, you know, the, the Middle Ages aesthetically were a period of color and beauty and song and light. I mean, just look at the, the, Gothic cathedrals, right? We think of them as, mm-hmm. as, you know, giant stones, but they would, one, they, they're filled with colored light, right? Because of the stained glass, but also the building, the, the, um, sculpture themselves, particularly on the front would have been, you know, it's the period when you invent not just, uh, you know, troubadorian song, which is the basis for all modern pop, you know, love songs. Um, but, <laughs> But also things like polyphony, right? The sort of experiments that the musicians make in, um, you know, multiple voices and, and so forth. So it, it takes a lot of propaganda um, on the part of the 18th and 19th centuries to create the, the dark ages as, as, so that people can even ask those kinds of questions on, on Twitter. So to wrap up our discussion uh, why do you think that such a, uh, you know, serious devotion to Our Lady that we see so prevalent in the Middle Ages that seems to be lost today sh- should be important, actually, today for women, uh, especially? So why do you think this um, devotion should be important? Because it's the center of the mystery of the incarnation, that she's the mother of God. Um, so, it, 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 you know, without understanding Mary's role, we don't understand the the great mystery. Of, you simply don't have Christianity without that truth. <laughs>